Good evening. How is everybody tonight? Y'all doing well? You look well. Um, it is a great week at First Baptist Summit. We have people in the, at, the, at the four winds right now. We've got people everywhere right now. Um, we have a large group of our kids, uh, almost 40 kids that are at a children's music uh, music camp this week. Uh, and so they are, uh, we've got four of our adults that are over there with them. We have a large group of our church, uh, including my wife and daughter, that are right now in Ecuador uh, serving the Lord at an orphanage uh, that is over there. And we have a group of students who are at MC this week at a Christian leadership camp, and Scott is with them. So we have people all over the place this week, and we're praying for them, excited for them, excited about um, not only what they are experiencing this week, but what they bring back. One of the greatest things about mission trips is not only, it's some of the things that you don't think about that really are why a lot of you should consider going on a mission trip. Um, obviously, we preach and teach a lot about Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, that we're to go therefore into all the world and to preach the gospel. Acts 1.8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so certainly there is a commission or a command to spread the gospel, but there are also some benefits of mission trips that, that I think sometimes people don't realize. And one of them is, uh, if you go serve in an uncomfortable place, a foreign place, um, and you go with people, you will develop better friendship in, in friendships in a week's time than you would in a year in years time being in the states. Because when we're here, we're obviously caught up in our lives and our families and our kids and our jobs and everything that we've got going on. But there, you're not only forced to rely on the Lord, but you're forced to rely on each other. You have shared experiences. Some of the greatest friendships that I have seen come about in our church have been because people have gone and served the Lord together in some capacity. So that, that's another, another benefit. But, but a third benefit that often goes untold is, is the more people that we can mobilize. Um, and, and I heard someone say this years ago, that... There are many people who you will never disciple until you mobilize them. Because any of you that have ever served the Lord, and a lot of you have in different capacities, is you grow so much closer to the Lord when you are pushed, when you are out of your comfort zone, when you're doing something that's not easy, when it's something that um, may be a stretch for you, that it causes you to grow in ways that no matter how powerful a small group Bible study may be or no matter how powerful a sermon may be, as great as those things are, there is a benefit to stretching ourselves and stretching ourselves in obedience. And then when we do that, it, does, it has another benefit of when we come back, it is wonderful to see people that now get excited about serving the Lord, that realize not only can I do that somewhere else, but I can do that right here. And they begin talking to other people about how awesome it is and the experiences that they have. Um, my, my daughter is 15. And this is her third. This is her third trip to Ecuador, um, and so my I talked to my wife. We're not able to talk much, but we talked uh, the second day they were there and just checked on her, see how they were doing. And she said, "Well, just so you know, your daughter and we have a way of uh, we like to say that uh, depending on the way they've behaved. Your daughter or your son." She said, "Your daughter made an appointment with the lady who runs this down here." 
And I said, really? She said, yes. She has asked her if she could come in, and they've already talked about how old she has to be to spend the entire summer in Ecuador. And she wants to go do, like, spend a summer mission and live there and live at the orphanage. And so um, I know God has a sense of humor because I've prayed for her since before she was born that she would love Jesus and that she would serve Jesus any way that she wanted him to do. And at the moment I heard that, I'm just being raw with you, I thought, I don't want her to go to Ecuador for the whole summer. You know, uh, I, I don't. Uh, and so I, I'm proud of her, but there's also, so, so there's an excitement that comes back. So I text her. This week, just told her, I love you, I miss you, I'm praying for you, hope you have a great week, can't wait to see you Saturday. And she said, oh, Dad, I can't, w I can't wait to tell you about it, it's too much to text. Now, she's my kid that you better sit down, because it may be two hours. I mean, she'll tell you every detail. Well, when we got there, when we flew in, we had a bus ride, and I mean, she's going to walk you through every moment of it, and she's going to tell everybody, because she's so excited. And there's something about that that I think is, is really what missions are ought to be for people, that you come back with a level of excitement and anticipation, and hopefully with some of that, it, other people see that and want to be a part of it. We've been in this series, as you know, on Wednesday night, studying the red letters, studying written in red or the red letters of Jesus. And tonight we're specifically going to look at a, a passage that, that really talks about that specifically, um, but also talks about um, what it looks like when people come back excited about missions and what, it, what happens when people are mobilized and they experience and when they come back and they're sharing about that. We learn not only from what they're describing to Jesus about what happens, but then we learn what Jesus then commands about their attitude, not only about missions, not only about their experiences, not only about how the Holy Spirit has moved in them, but what their true source of joy should be. And so um, that being said, I want you to know something, and, and, and I am forever evaluating myself on this. Um, I'm so proud uh, Ron Wilson is teaching uh, at the college now. He's teaching Old Testament, New Testament. He's done that. He's, he's taught at the prison, and I couldn't be more proud of him. And I've enjoyed listening to his conversations because talking about preparing that, because when I taught Old Testament, New Testament, it taught me probably more than preaching for a decade did because I realized when I walked into that class that a lot of those kids had been in church. Not all of them because I had some athletes that got stuck in class that didn't necessarily want to be in the Bible class. But by and large, most people chose to take that because it was an elective unless you were needing a philosophy credit for a liberal arts degree. And then it would count towards that. So every semester I would have kids and most of them had some form of church background. But it began to, and I didn't put two and two together. It took me a couple of semesters to realize that I couldn't assume anything with these students. In other words, we couldn't start at just any level. You had to start at a very, very basic level because I wasn't succeeding. I, sometimes when you evaluate yourself, you realize I'm not, I'm not doing as good a job. I thought I was going to be better at this. And, I, and so I started evaluating myself and asking, why do I, I say, what am I missing here? And what I was missing was that I was assuming too much about what people know about God, about Scripture, about the Bible, about how all of it connects together. I find that, that a lot of times people struggle. They know the story of Adam and Eve, and they, they may know the story of Noah, and they may know the story of Abraham, and they may know the story of Moses. But how, do all of that, how does all that tie together if you had to tell it in a narrative format? So as I began to, to see that, 
I've realized that that carries over in church too. And I mentioned to you guys, one of the great challenges of preparing to preach each week is that there is such a variety of people in here, from people who have never been in church, to children, to senior adults who have studied the Bible for 80 years of their life. So it's always a variety of people that you're trying to think about. And when I prepare, I try to have kind of different people in my mind, you know, like kind of picture, well, would this would this reach, would this person connect with this? Would, would this person connect with this? And, and so in doing that, I've realized that in preaching, I need to be very careful. And if you teach anything, you've got to be very careful not to assume too much. And I had a conversation recently, and I realized that not only in Bible study, but in church, often we assume too much. Because I had a conversation recently about the existence of heaven and hell. Is there a real place called heaven that people go, and is there a real place called hell? And is it possible to be saved without believing in heaven and hell? This was something that I realized probably I would take for granted with most people. But let's take for just a moment and talk about the reality of heaven. We could obviously spend a lot of time on the reality of hell because Jesus spent more time talking about hell than he did heaven. But for tonight, if we were to pick up the subject of heaven, the, one of the greatest excitements that we should have in our life is the firm hope. We have this hope, that's what Hebrews says, that is firm and secure, an anchor for our souls. We have this hope that is firm and secure, that this is not all there is, that there is something after this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if all we have is hope for this life, then we should be what? Pitied more than all men. And so what we know is, is that Paul said, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we should just eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, if there's nothing on the other side, then basically you're all wasting your time, and I'm wasting my time. So really, the anchor um, it, when eternal life starts, it doesn't start when you die, it starts when you're saved. But that being said, one of the greatest keys to our, our greatest hope is that there is something after this. And we are saved not only from our sin, but we are saved to an eternal life or a life with Christ. When these 72 come back to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, they're excited. And in their excitement, Jesus wants to anchor their excitement from being more about their experiences to what their hope is in. Now, let me say that again. We should be more excited, not about experiences we have, but that the greater hope that we have. Because experiences change, circumstances change. So as we delve into this, the 72 have come back, and you're going to see how Jesus replies to them as they come back with their missionary report. I'm going to start reading that, and you can certainly go back and and I would encourage you to, to read all of chapter 10 and, and to, to catch up. But we're going to start reading together uh, tonight at verse 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
And at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those who, to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that my, not many prophets wanted to see what you see, but did not, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So when they come back, they are absolutely, they're fired up. They're like a, a, a bunch of teenagers that have just come off a mission trip. And they're, they go to Jesus and they're like, hey, guess what? Guess what? Guess what happened? Even the demons listened to us. We, we could command the demons. And Jesus has given them authority over the demons. And Jesus, and what we know is that this rebuke was a rebuke of joy because we're told a few verses later that Jesus, full of joy, began to speak to the Father. But even in his joy, he reminded them of something. And don't miss this, because this is the reminder that the evangelical church needs to hear. It's a reminder that, of some things we can't assume. Jesus affirms the power. He said, yes, I have given you that power. He had established it during his earthly ministry. Jesus drove out the demons. One of the, um, one of the coolest places, when, it, when, we, when you remember um, when when Jesus found himself in the region of the Decapolis, that is the cities, that, that is non-Jewish cities that are on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus goes over there, do you remember the story? There is a man who is wandering among the tombs. And they said, no one, no chain, nothing can chain him. He lives among the tombs. He can break the chains. He's completely possessed of demons. And Jesus calls out to this man and he says, what is your name? And the man says, I am legion for we are many. And he is just absolutely infested with demons. And so Jesus commands these demons, but the G demons know exactly who Jesus is. You know, what do you, and they beg of him, please, please. Please cast us into the swine. The reason there was even swine there was because they were in the Decapolis. They were not on the Jewish side of the lake. They were in on the other side of the lake. That's the reason they had pigs. The reason that we know that the Jews wouldn't have had pigs is because of the Levitical law. So when he cast them into the pigs, they all go off the side. If you take the trip to Israel, you will stand in that place and actually look at the tombs that are still cut in the rock on the mountain where the man named Legion would have wandered. You can see the cliff where the, the actual village where Jesus was. They're, they have dug it up. The remains are still there. And the cliff where the pigs went over the side, you can stand and watch where they would have seen the pigs go over the side of the mountain. It's not fake. It's not... It's not uh, folklore. It, it's real. It's actual places that it actually happened. And so Jesus has not only done this, but he's given these 72. He has blessed them with this ability and this power. And so when they come back, we know that Jesus has not only established this, but that coming, as you keep reading Luke and all the rest of the Gospels, that he dealt a deadly blow at the resurrection. He's going to seal it at Armageddon. We've talked about that over and over again. And so you need to know um, I think sometimes when we start talking about Satan and demons, sometimes people in church recall like, mm, we're getting a little, we're getting kind of off into it, aren't we? Aren't we getting a little far? Satan is a reality. Demonic activity is a reality. 
Um, and so because of that, believers need to be reminded that Satan can certainly tempt you, that demons can certainly afflict you, but you cannot be possessed by a demon. But that does not mean that there's not spiritual warfare that's taking place. And so when they come back, we know that because of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that there's no power that is in the world that's greater than he who is in us. But the power is not in the man. Let me say that again. When you see healing ministries and people claim to have the gift of healing, the only person who has the gift of healing is Jesus Christ. There is no man who is given a superpower that somehow is anointed on his own, whether it be to cast out demons or to heal or to any of that. So they have been given the authority, but that authority was not because these men now on their own right had this power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit by Jesus working through them. And one of the reasons that we know that is, and, and I tell people a lot, because there are at times people, I get questions, in fact, um, I've had one this week about somebody worried about some demonic activity, some things that he encountered, didn't know whether it was demonic, but it was definitely some things in his, his life were bothering him and wasn't sure if it was, um, whether or not it was satanic or trying to discern that. And I don't know either. I, I really, I, I can't, tell him or you or myself or anyone else definitely whether or not something is a demonic activity. But what I do know is this, is whether it is de demonic or not, there is power in the name of Jesus. So when we pray the name of Jesus, when we speak the name of Jesus, it is not a magical incantation. It's not like saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is going to send something away. But the power is in the name. The name of Christ holds power. And so we know because it's not just about saying his name because there's a, actually a biblical example of some people that tried that. Do you remember this story? It's one of my favorite Bible stories. It's a, it's a group, you find the story, I put it in your notes, it's in Acts 19. <laughs> and there's this group called the Sons of Sceva. And they're going to try to rip off the apostles and rip off Jesus. And they're going to start going to go try to do, do miracles in the, name, in the name of Christ. So there is a demon-possessed demon man. And so they call out to him and they say, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out. In fact, they said, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches... Come out. And you know what the demon said? He said, Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but who are you? And then it said that the demons beat him until he was bloody and naked. The reason I bring that up is to tell you that the power is not in the person or even in speaking the name of Jesus. The power is in the, the power of the Holy Spirit working through that individual. So Jesus is trying to kind of bring them back to a point of understanding that the greatest thing that they have in their life is not that they've cast a demon out of someone, but that the greatest thing that they have is that their salvation now, Jesus affirmed that he saw Satan fall. Now, most of the time when people read this, and, and different, different commentators disagree on this particular verse of Scripture, but I do not believe here that he is talking about from Isaiah 14 when uh, Satan rebelled and he was cast out of heaven with a third of the demons. That did happen. 
But what he, the picture here is not of Jesus watching Satan fall from heaven, but a continual process as he sees king, Satan's kingdom destroyed one rescued soul at a time. So what we know is, is that all of these that are being delivered as the 72 preach the gospel and as Jesus preaches the gospel and as John the Baptist and the disciples and the early church, that when we're waging spiritual warfare, that spiritual warfare shouldn't be seen as going to find a Catholic priest with holy water and a rosary to spray down a house. Here is true holy war. Holy war is when someone gives their life to Christ. That is spiritual warfare and a defeat of the enemy. And when that takes place, now we are seeing the gospel at work in people's life. Sunday, 9 o'clock service, we have a, a gentleman named Danny Creel that gave his life to Christ and was baptized. He gave a powerful testimony in the 9 o'clock service, adult man, about how he didn't understand his whole life, exactly what it was to submit to the Lordship of Christ. He gives his testimony, gets baptized. That same Sunday, a wonderful lady came forward and gave her life to Christ because she saw his testimony and it moved in her about how she needed to give her life to Christ. That's spiritual warfare. That is Christ winning with souls, with the power of the gospel. So when we want to advance the cause of Christ, it's not because we're going to go out with water guns and fill them up with holy water and walk out and make and say spells. It's by the advancement of the gospel and the preaching of the power of God through a resurrected Lord, which is what we saw here. And so Satan's kingdom is being destroyed one rescued soul at a time. The ministry of the 72 is... Um, uh, that we see and down through church history as God and the angels rejoice every time a lost sinner is saved. We know Luke 15, 7 and 10 tells us that there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now I'll tell you this. This is just a, a little bit of a sidebar, um, but it's a Wednesday night in July, so I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here. I am absolutely, I believe there ought to be an order to worship service. I am not for, I've got, I, I, in fact, I think it's an abomination before a holy God when there's not order in worship. People running around, you know, we, we see these YouTube videos, people spinning their coats and diving off in the baptistry and acting like they have absolutely lost, lost control of their mind. There is nothing holy about losing, it should be that when our mind is sanctified, we become more orderly, not less orderly. That being said, when someone gets saved, if all heaven explodes in an eruption of praise, sometimes I wonder if we really get how awesome the gospel is when people get saved and we do this. I'm not saying we got to hoop and holler and jump off the balcony, but at some point, all of heaven just erupted in praise because a soul that was going to hell is now going to heaven because the blood of Jesus covered their soul and they're saved from their sin and they're rescued from the dominion of darkness and they're no longer a possession of Satan and they're not lost to their own flesh and they have a hope and they have a faith and they're secure and there's peace in their life. I really do think that one of the great marks of a healthy church is they really do get fired up when people get saved. I want to tell you this. I... I wish so many people got saved that we, you couldn't keep up with this. But I just want to challenge you because you love Jesus. I know you do. You're here. It's 100 degrees outside. You're here on a Wednesday night. I'm proud of you. I just want to challenge you that if you find out someone from this church got saved, 
you ought to let them know you're proud of them. Whether it's a card, whether you tell you say, well, I don't know everybody. I couldn't care less whether you know them or not. Do you know how incredible that is? Whether you find them in person, you find a way to contact them. I mean, it, it, I'd love it if I, I really think there's no reason we shouldn't be seeing 100 to 150 people saved and baptized every year. But on any given year, it ought to be if you said, okay, let's just say, let's just pick a number. Let's say 70 people got saved through the ministry of this church over this upcoming year. That wouldn't be too many for you to individually say, hey, I'm really proud of what God's done in your life. That's incredible. I think we've got to do a better job of celebrating salvations than we do 16th birthdays and graduations. I, I was thinking about it, and there's not, I'm not, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with this, but, but now w when kids graduate from high school, it has gotten absolutely off the hinges with senior parties. And I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable. And yet, when a person gets saved, sometimes I think we could do a lot better job of showing the excitement that Jesus is talking about here, this eruption of praise that comes out. It's a big deal when someone gets saved. And Jesus' point through that is that that should be where your greatest hope can be. Um, in verses 20 through 24, um, we see that Jesus is showing them that Satan can bring trials, but he can never take away our salvation or separate us from the love of God. So the greatest source of joy is that God's power and protection are with us in this life and for eternity. I think that's just absolutely, when you praise God for something, and I am as guilty of this as anyone can be, often I praise God for a lot of different things, or thank God for things in my life. But fundamentally, the greatest thing I have to thank God for is the security of my salvation in Christ. That everything else, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really matter. I'm looking out at some of you tonight, and some of you I know just specifically, I'm not going to call anybody's name, but they're in here right now, have recently gone through some hard stuff, like some tragedies, some, some rough stuff. And there's some of you in here that have had some awesome things lately. I mean, some incredible stuff happened lately. And what I think grounds us is, no matter if it's the worst day of my life, I'm saved. On the best day of my life, I'm saved. And the greatest thing I have to praise God for is that hope, not the experiences, even great as they may be, the greatest hope we have is in salvation. Um, I, I put here, it's like, um, sometimes on ESPN or ESPN Classics, they'll show old games, old football games or old boxing matches, and you're watching it, especially maybe sometimes if it's a game you remember or they say this was one of the greatest Super Bowls ever, or they cut to a national championship. But the weird thing about watching those is you can already know the end. Like, you already know the end result. And I would never watch one of those uh, old game if my team lost. Ever. I, I know. But I would watch it if my team won. Why? Because I know what's coming. So the first time you watch it, you're kind of with bated breath going, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope. But the next time you watch it, you're like, oh, I know, I know, I know. And a guy comes up to bat, and you're kind of almost like well, enjoying it more because you know oh, he's about to jack one. 
You know, or, or you know, oh, we're going to convert this fourth down. Or you know that he's going to hit that shot in the corner. You already know. So it's like I've already got this in my mind. And sometimes I think with worship, we need to be reminded that, yes, we are praising God in the moment, but we, we're benefited because we already have seen it. We, we already know the end. We already know what's going to happen. The victory's already there. So we don't worship hoping that we win the game. We worship because it's already been won. That's a big difference. That changes the way you approach the Lord. Um, and, and I think that's huge. So this is what Jesus said in verses 21 through 24. This is what generates the greatest joy. And, and Jesus breaks out into full praise. He breaks out into prayer, and he goes to God immediately from this. And this was his greatest source of joy. So Jesus' greatest source of joy was that the Father had revealed himself through Jesus Two people, so that because when Jesus, when they were chosen, that they could be saved. So if we're trying to derive joy from anything other than this, then we're going to miss out. So no matter what gifts we've given or influence we have, we have an even greater joy than that. Um, I have, I've got a, um, one of the things that I think is, is really healthy um, for people. I really think no matter how old you are, you ought to do the best that you can to try to hang out with little kids. I'm not talking about like fifth grade. I'm talking about like preschool kids. There is something about having a small, little child in your life that will absolutely change perspectives. It change, it, it's fantastic. Now, sometimes you want to not be around them. I get it. But there's something about a kid. I don't know what it. I don't know what it is. I've always like. There's something about just looking at a baby that I think is just like. It's just amazing. Like in your and 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 kids, they're honest and they're funny and they're full of excitement. And and, and just just a little while ago, we have a, a couple that they're so dedicated. They work with our youth, and I was over there before I walked over here, and they've adopted two uh, beautiful children, and they're both preschoolers, and so they came in and. Little Lottie walked in, so she came up, and she gave me a hug, and I picked her up, and I knew what she was doing because she kind of looking at me and smiling, and she wants me to do this thing where I kind of like, not, I don't throw the kid up to the ceiling, but I would toss her up a little bit and catch her and just kind of swing her, and every time I do it, she'll just giggle, 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 and laugh, laugh, laugh. I don't know how many times I could do that and her not do that. Every time, I mean, and every time I see her, it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. And you kind of wonder sometimes, you're like, is this not going to get old to this kid? But it doesn't get old. It's like it's the game. It's like it almost gets better and better. And, and I thought about something when Jesus talks about this childlike faith, that he, he kept it from the learned and he kept it from the wise, but like a child. That is in the context of talking about people having a joy over their salvation, I think we need to get back to an understanding of enjoying God, enjoying those moments where we recognize that Jesus hasn't gotten old to me, the gospel hasn't gotten old to me, that the celebration and praise and rejoicing of God is not something that just comes up every now and then, but it's over and over and over again. And that's why sometimes I think, Yes, we need to have an order in worship. But if you can have a quiet time or a prayer or read the Bible or be in church or sing praises and you do, get through the whole thing without smiling, something's broken in your worship.
There is something that is about that when we celebrate Christ, when we really understand the gospel, that it ought to overwhelm us with joy. Not just once, not just at a revival 30 years ago, not at a disciple now when you were a teenager, not just at youth camp, but daily, weekly. It is not that we have to praise Jesus. It is that we smile with laughter with the recognition that he is still holding us and that our hope is in him and our joy is in him and our peace is in him. So rejoice over your salvation. Remember, no matter what else you have in your life, that the greatest thing you have in your life is the hope of heaven, a hope that is firm, a hope that is secure, a hope that is the anchor for our souls. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that your word's written and read, that, Lord, there's not a jot or a tittle that will ever, ever disappear, that there is wisdom and beauty in the words that you speak. And so, Lord, I pray that we would treasure them in our mind, that we would treasure them in our heart. Tonight, specifically, as we think about that great joy that we have in salvation, Lord, we may we never forget to praise you, no matter what else you've done for us, and it's a lot, that the greatest thing you've done for us is to set us a hope that is firm and secure, that, Lord, there is a place called heaven, and that, Lord, for those of us that know you as Savior, that na whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, God, we are thankful that they were written in pen and not in pencil, that they cannot be taken away by Satan or anyone else, and that, Lord, we have that as a great and glorious hope. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask it now in your name. Amen.